You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, please visit Stonegate.Church. Okay, 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Today we're going to take a step out of the set of sermons we began a few weeks ago called Seeing Jesus. And we're going to spend a, a morning thinking about money and possessions money and possessions. Now, I've been in ministry preaching, doing this sort of a thing for a little over 15 years, and it's interesting, in any time um, the, the idea of money and possessions, like we're going to address that, preach on that, deal with that, think through that together, uh, anytime that gets thrown out, it, it's been so interesting to watch what happens in so many human hearts. Uh, inside of so many people, in that moment, there is this instant sort of wall that comes up, and that wall has been so thick at times, it's actually caused me over the last decade and a half of, of uh, preaching and pastoring and doing those sorts of things to ask the question, man, in light of that, should we even preach on money and possessions? And my answer is yes. I want to give you a couple of reasons why. Uh, one reason starts with a church planter uh, that's, that's in our church planting network, Acts 29, and uh, he planted a church in a hard-to-reach place. You'll see a picture of him up on the screen. He's the guy up on the left. That's Rashid. His brother is on the right. And uh, he planted a church in a place that was hostile to Jesus. And uh, the, the particular area that they were in, uh, life was it lived under this blasphemy law. Went like this. Whoever by words, either spoken or written, or by visible representation, or by any imputation, innuendo, or insinuation, directly or indirectly defiles the sacred name of the holy prophet Muhammad shall be punished with death or imprisonment for life and shall also be liable to a fine. In July of 2010, uh, Rashid and his brother were both accused of blasphemy and thrown in jail. Uh, they stayed there for uh, a while. They were eventually released. And when they were released, they were walking out of the jail and they were both gunned down by an angry mob. Now just feel that for a moment. Uh, that, that has sights and sounds and smells that are all horrific. And I want you to think about what would living in a context like that, a place like that, do to a Christian community? Like just imagine... Uh, we uprooted Stonegate, and we went from Midlothian, Texas, and all of a sudden, uh, this entire church family found themselves in that context under that blasphemy law. Just think about what that would do to all of us in the room. Think about what it would do to our church. Think about what it would, uh, the, the differences that, that it would make. It, it would make you think twice before you put that fish on the back of your car, wouldn't it? It'd make you think twice before you wore that Christian t-shirt, before you carried your Bible around with you, before you talked about Jesus as the only way to be reconciled to God. Uh, it would make you think twice before you went to church. It would make you think uh, twice before you were about planting churches, before you were just generally about the name and renown of Jesus. It would make you think twice about all that if you really believe that there might be a mob show up at your house that night. It would change so much about it. You would think twice about all of those sorts of things. See, if there's one thing that living like that in a, in a place like that would do to all of us, and one of the benefits, one of the things that it does, is it has a way of separating fans from the followers. 
fans of Jesus from the followers of Jesus. That, that context has a way of doing that to any Christian community. Now, he, here in some ways is our problem in America. There are very few things that create that sort of division. There's very few things that, that run a line in the sand like that, uh, that that separate fans from followers, those who sort of generally admire Jesus from those who have an abiding love of Jesus in them. There are very few things that, that sort of create that division. And one reason that I think every pastor ought to consistently talk about money and possessions with the people they're pastoring it is not because they want something from them, but they want something for them. Uh, culturally, it's the most reliable guide to determine if you're a fan of Jesus or a follower. It's one of the most reliable guides to that. Now, that wouldn't be true in many other parts of the world, but it's true here. And, and if any pastor refuses to talk about money and possessions, they're refusing their people a chance to discern, am I a fan or am I a follower? It's it just, it, it's, 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 failing to give them one of the most reliable tests to discern that. Now, take on top of that, that, that money and possessions is one of the core discipleship areas in the life of every human being. Now, now think about this biblically for a minute. In the Bible, there are 2,350 verses dealing with money and possessions. That's amazing, isn't it? Twice as many, if you took all the, the verses that dealt with prayer and faith, put them all together, there are twice as many verses that deal with money and possessions as, as prayer and faith. It is, it is a pervasive issue that's addressed in the Bible. Now, ask the question, like, why is it that so much biblical real estate goes to money and possessions? Why is that? It's because God loves us, and he knows that money is a ruthless competitor for the affection of our hearts. That our hearts can be all about Jesus, and then there is this drift inside of our heart. We're all prone to drifting. There's this tendency to leave Jesus for a love of money and possessions. You see that throughout the Bible. Just see the rich young ruler. This is the reason Jesus says you can't serve two masters. You're going to love one and hate the other, right? It, there's just this drift in our heart. He knows that money is a ruthless competitor for the affection of our hearts. So, like a good dad, God warns us of the dangers of money and possessions. Our good dad reminds us, 2,350 verses, reminds us of his will and heart concerning money and possessions. And when you get to 2 Corinthians chapter 8, these two chapters, chapter 8 and 9, they form together the largest and richest teaching in the Bible on money and possessions these two chapters. And I would just encourage you, there's no way we're going to get to all of it this morning. I would just encourage you to periodically break open your Bible to 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 and to read through those two chapters, just to encourage you and spur you along and help your heart lean away from that drift of loving money and possessions over God. So 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. So let me give the context of, of this uh, passage. Paul is on his third missionary journey. So Paul is visiting the churches. He, he helps start and, and he is writing, on this third missionary journey, he's writing to the Corinthian church from somewhere in Macedonia, probably from the church in Philippi. So he's writing from probably Philippi to the Corinthian church. And if you have uh, the ESV, that version of the Bible, if you look right above chapter 8, you'll see the heading. This is, this is what Paul is doing in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. The heading there in the ESV 
is uh, encouraging to give generously. This is what he's doing. I'm encouraging them to give, and to not just give, but to give generously. Now, again, there's more in these two chapters, and we're going to have time to to get into this morning, but I just want to offer four observations from from 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. Four observations. And we'll just start in verse 1 here of, of chapter 8. 2 Corinthians 8, verse 1. Paul says, We want you to know, brothers. So Paul is writing to his brothers and sisters at the Corinthian church. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, he's describing what's happening in the churches in Macedonia. And here's one way he describes them. They're in a severe test of affliction. For in a severe test of affliction, that is severe suffering. In a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty. It's not just poverty. It is extreme poverty. Think third world poverty. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty, all of that has come together and it has overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. Now that's amazing. Paul is writing from from this church in Macedonia in extreme suffering, they're in extreme poverty, and he's writing about them and he's using them as an example of what generosity should look like in the life of a church in the life of a follower of Jesus. It would be akin to to God taking an inner city South Dallas church, an impoverished church, and him looking at that church and then him, him using that church as a model for generosity for a suburban church like us. This is what this is what God is doing here. They're in severe affliction, extreme poverty, yet they are overflowing in generosity. They are a model of generosity here. So then you get to verse three. Here's observation one. First three words of verse three. It says four, extreme poverty, incredible affliction and suffering. And here's Paul's description of them. For they gave. For they gave. Here's observation number one. Christians give. Christians give, for they gave. Generosity is the reflex of a heart that's been redeemed by Jesus. Those first three words, for they gave. Those first three words should be a summary statement of every follower of Jesus, for they gave. Now, if you look at in in this passage, they, they are giving everything. They are giving time and skills and houses and families and energy and tears and prayers. This should be true of every Christian. They're giving all of these things. And in this passage in particular, they are giving money and possessions. And Paul is showing us here that that when a heart has been captured by Jesus, enthralled by Jesus, when that happens, their heart opens up to Jesus and generosity begins to flow out of them. Hence those first three words in verse 3, for they gave. Now, here's the problem. If you look across the American church, those three words do not describe most people who self-identify as Christians in America. If you look across the, the American church, that, that, this description, for they gave, that summary statement of a Christian's life does not apply. Uh, Christian Smith is a sociologist. He's done a ton of, he's a Christian and a sociologist. He's done a lot of research in in several different areas, but one of them is in Christian giving. 
Uh, he wrote a book uh, years ago called pa uh, Passing the Plate. And in that book, he here's a few things that he found. He found that one of four self-identified Christians, they give nothing. So just every person that self-identifies as a Christian, 25% of them don't give anything at all. Then he found, secondly, that the vast majority of Christians, uh, people who self-identify as Christians, give next to nothing. So as a for instance, he said that the median giving, so you have to go back to your, uh, your math classes here. So the median giving is if you lined up 100 people, across the stage, and they were lined up by how they were doing in generosity from least to the greatest. The median would just, if there's 100 people representing self-identified Christians, you would just go to number 50 in that list and take that person, that's the median, and figure out how, how are they on the giving, like how are they doing there? And, and the median giving among self-identified Christians is 0.62%. So for every $100 the Lord entrusts to them, they give 62 cents. That's the median, right there in the middle, is that. And then the average giving, so if you take all 100 of those people, uh, add up all of their generosity and divide it by 100, the average giving is 2.45%. So the vast majority get, give next to nothing. And then he found an interesting correlation between earning and giving. Uh, you would think that the more people earn, the more they would give, right? I mean, this is how we would kind of generally think about it. If I had more, I would give more. If I just stumbled in and won the lottery tomorrow, I'd probably do this and that, and I'd be so generous with everything, and probably not. Probably not. Uh, he actually found the exact opposite to be true, that the more a person's income increased, uh, the, the, the percentage of their giving decreased. Isn't that interesting? You'd think the exact opposite would be true, but, but the more their income increased, the more their giving decreased percentage-wise. Uh, so his point is that, that having more won't make you more generous. Just not the way it works. Having more does, doesn't do that. Uh, he went on to say that ironically, dollar for dollar, the average American gave more during the Great Depression than they give today. G giving per, per person was more then than it was today, dollar for dollar. So if, if, part of what that means for all of us in the room, if we aren't generous with what we have, we won't be generous with what we will have. If we have $100 today, but we're not generous with that, we won't be generous with $1,000 tomorrow, right? Like your generosity now is reflective of what your generosity will, will be then. But this was maybe the, the most interesting thing for me. He, he tried to get down to the bottom of why is it that people don't give? And when he asked that question to thousands and thousands of people, the top response that he got back was just the simple answer of, I can't. I, I can't give. Uh, in other words, there, there's just more month than there is money. Now, I've lived in a suburban context now for, um, for 17 years. And it would seem to me that that I can't response is representative of most people in a suburban context. That, that in a suburban context, there is a, a definite tendency for our lifestyle to swell above and beyond our means. That, 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 is, that, that is a normative pattern in a suburban context. And, and we all know this. You, you can be broke making 40 grand a year or 400 grand a year. It really doesn't matter how much you mo make. You can still be broke, right? And, and bad stewardship. Just not, not, not stewarding what it is the Lord gives us. Bad stewardship always leads to a lack of generosity. It always does. How could it not lead to a lack of generosity, right? If we don't wisely manage 
what it is that Jesus has entrusted to us, we'll never generously give it. So, so wise management on the front end is kind of the prerequisite for a lot of generosity on the back end of that. So let, let me just take one step back, and I want to make a plug for our financial care class. We've got a financial care class coming up in October, and uh, it, it, is, it is trying to help us as a church family be good stewards of what it is the Lord has entrusted to us so that we can then be generous with what the Lord's entrusted to us. But, but it's on that side of the coin. It's on, it's on stewardship, trying to help us see our financial world, what the Lord has entrusted to us, and to deal wisely with those things. So if, if you have not done that class, you should jump in in October. If you haven't done it in like three or four years, it would be a great thing to jump into. We are all prone, even if there was one moment in our life where we were stewarding the resources that God's entrusted to us well, we are all prone toward um, lackluster stewardship. And so every three or four or five years, it would be just such a good thing to do a little bit of thinking in that area of your life. Uh, maybe it's, if you're a home group leader in the room, that would be such a good thing to just take your whole home group and plug into that uh, for a couple of months season every four or five years uh, just to, to give your people in your group time to think through these sorts of things. If we don't steward what the Lord has entrusted to us well, we won't generously give what the Lord has entrusted to us. Right? It just, those two things are intricately connected. So you can go to stonegate.church, upcoming events, you can register for that financial peace class that's starting uh, really soon, like in the next uh, week or two here at the church. I just want to encourage you to do that. But here's observation number one, Christians give. It's verse three, for they gave. Those three words should be a summary statement of every follower of Jesus's life. So just think about your own life. If somebody were writing a summary statement above it, would that one work for you? For they gave. Christians give. Here's the next observation. Christians give, and then Christians give sacrificially. Sacrificially. Look at verse 3 again. For they gave. There's Christians giving. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means. Now, there is a really damaging money myth that is rampant in the church. And it, it goes something like this. Maybe you could kind of get to the heart of it with a question. How much do you think God wants you to give? How much is that? And the overwhelming response is 10%. And then when you, when you come down under that response, here is the way most people think about their, their, the, the money the Lord's entrusted to them is that as long as they kind of do this 10% thing over here, then God doesn't care at all about what they do with the other 90% over there. So, so as long as they can just kind of appease God here, they're good to do whatever they want over there. That is so not the way. That is the wrong way to see how God looks upon our, our finances and how God looks upon the money and possessions that he's entrusted to us. It, it, it's not, it, God is not just con concerned with that 10%. God is concerned about the entire 100% that he's entrusted to you. He cares about it all. But most people think it's just that 10% because of the tithe. Now, I want to just do a little bit of unpacking of that word real quickly, the tithe. Tithe means 10%. Let's just think about it in the Old Testament for a moment. There were three types of giving that happened in the Old Testament. One was 10% per year that went to the priest and the Old uh, Testament sort of temple system. So it, it's essentially to their church in the Old Testament. And, and that's where you get the tithe, that, that 10%. Then there would be another 10% given per year 
uh, that would provide for the various festivals that the people of God would experience together. So you had 10% to the priests and and Old Testament temple, and then 10% for the festivals. And then every third year, the people of God would give another 10% to help the poor. So if you just kind of do the all-in math on that, that comes out to 23.3% every year. That's the average every year that the people in the Old Testament were giving. Then on top of that, you would have various projects that would happen that the people of God would rally around to help do. But that's what it looked like in the Old Testament. Now, come to the New Testament, and what does it look like? In the New Testament, uh, Jesus commends the tithe in, in uh, Matthew chapter 23, but Jesus never commands the tithe. So he commends it, but never commands it. Uh, it you know, if you want to think about just the, uh, the posture that the New Testament has, uh, the New Testament talks less in terms of percentage and much more in terms of sacrifice. Like, if you just want the way the New Testament sees generosity, uh, sacrifice is the New Testament standard of, of giving or of generosity. S- sacrifice is the key idea that the New Testament gets at. And in some ways, you see it in our passage here. Uh, you've got, think about the three ways you could give, the three ways you could relate to giving. You can give below our ability. You can give according to, to our ability. Or we can give beyond our ability. And beyond our ability, that is the, the sort of uncharted waters of sacrificial giving, beyond our ability. And you see it here in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. The Macedonian churches, uh, they were in a severe, you know, affliction, extreme poverty. And they did not give according to their means. You see it in verse 3. They didn't give according to their means. According to your means is okay, great, I have a spare dollar, then here, I'll give the spare dollar. That's according to your means. But, but they didn't give according to their means. They gave beyond their means. Beyond your means is I'm going to have to cut into my daily life to create a dollar, and then I'm going to give that dollar. That, that's beyond your means. And that's, that's how they're giving. They're giving beyond their means. And it's that sort of giving, that giving that is beyond our ability or beyond our means that Paul and Jesus and the New Testament is leaning the church toward. It, it's sacrificial giving. Uh, let me maybe put it in, a, uh, in an illustration. Most of us have probably known a person that somewhere along the way bought too much house for their budget, Right? So now what happens when a person buys too much house? What happens to that person or that couple or, you know, that person is every financial decision from that point forward is governed by that decision they made to buy that house. The house is then sitting in the governing position. Every other thing is subservient to that, that, that house decision. Okay, now, now take that picture. Now let's apply it to sacrificial giving. Sacrificial generosity is the moment that, that not, it's not our house or our spending that is too big for our, our budget. It's when our giving is too big for our budget. Sacrificial generosity is that moment when our giving, not our spending, becomes the thing governing and setting the pace for every other decision that we make. That's, that's sacrificial generosity. Sacrificial giving is, is giving to the point where it actually cuts into your life and affects your daily life. It's, it's risky giving. It's giving that, that leads us into the deep waters of faith and, and risk. You see this in Luke 21. Jesus, in Luke 21, Jesus is watching people give. Now that's a sobering thing to reckon with, isn't it? 
that Jesus knows these things. He pays attention to those things. He's watching them give, and he is watching some people just drop some bombs in the offering basket. I mean, it, it is going down. But here's the thing. He is unmoved by it. He doesn't, he doesn't commend it. He doesn't, like, take a minute to point that out. He, he, is, he is unmoved by it. And then all of a sudden, there is this little widow that comes up to the offering basket, and all she has is two coins. And she drops two small coins into the basket, her last two coins. It was everything she had. And Jesus stops the entire moment. He stops and he commends this widow as an example to follow. Now, why is that? It was because she wasn't giving below her means or her ability. She wasn't giving according to her ability. It was because she was giving beyond her ability. Part of what Luke 21 is showing us is, is it's showing us that Jesus isn't so concerned with amounts and percentages. Jesus is massively concerned with sacrifice. And there's a big difference between the two. Sacrifice isn't determined by what you give. Sacrifice is determined by what's left after you give. And that's what Jesus is after. S sacrifice. A sort of giving that, that cuts into life, that, that's risky, that, that makes us embrace faith. That, that's the giving that he's after. You know, it's interesting. People will often ask uh, any of our pastors and elders, like they'll, they'll ask the question of like, how in the world did this, this like Stonegate happen? You're 10 years in and how did all, how did all of this go down? How, how did that happen? And, and generally our answer is it comes in two parts. The first part is, Jesus has met us with miracle after miracle after miracle. That, that's part one of the answer. And it's the biggest part of the answer. Uh, it, it's just almost an embarrassment of riches and how Jesus, just almost too many miracles to recount. But the other side of that answer is in, in addition to Jesus giving us miracle, that has been linked up with, we have had a church over the last 10 years willing to stay at the edge of their generosity who have been willing to give sacrificially. Like if you're just, if you're here over the last year or two or even three, the, the reason we're here right now and you're here with us is because there have been a whole line of people that have made up our church family who have just stayed right there at the edge and given in ways that it has just cut deep into their life. Now, if we could just look forward for the next 10 or 15 or 20 years to all the places God's going to have us go, to the people he's going to have us reach, to the people who are going to grow up in Jesus in and around our church family, to the vulnerable kids that are going to be adopted and cared for, to the churches who are going to be planted. If God is going to take us to all of those sort of places, here is what it will require from us as a church family, is that all of us stay all in. That's what it's going to require is that we all stay at the edge of that generosity, that we all lean into, and our posture is leaning into that sort of sacrificial generosity, that the moment we as a church stop doing that is the moment we stop moving forward, that that's the moment. So, so the next 10, 15, 20 years, one day, in 20 years from now, we're going to look back on this moment. And, and here's what we're going to say, either one of two things. We started to decline because we just would not lean in in the same way. Or we were just getting started because our hearts just kept leaning into everything Jesus would have. When God would present a need for us, we were just the, the sort of people who would say yes. But we were willing to give sacrificially. Our next 20 years are dependent upon that. 
So this is a good time for us to ask, is our giving sacrificial? Is it sacrificial? Now, what often happens from there is we begin to ask the question, well, how much does it have to be for it to be sacrificial? And and it would be impossible for me to give detailed answers for anyone in the room. That's something you're going to have to work out. But generally speaking, I think a tithe is a good place to start. Again, it's not commanded in the New Testament, but it's commanded. It's a good place to start. I think the way to think about a tithe is it's like a person trying to ride a bike. It's putting training wheels on the bike. That's a tithe. It's putting training wheels on the bike of sacrifice. And and you get the training wheels put on so you can get on the bike and you can start to get a feel for what the bike is like, what what sacrifice is like. But the goal is not to live forever with training wheels on, right? The the goal is for us to take the training wheels off and for us to pedal the bike of sacrifice. That's where the Lord's taking us. That's where he wants to take us. So we need to ask that question. Are we giving in such a way where it cuts into our daily life? where it's making us embrace risk. See, what, what most, of us, most of us have this sort of a, of a line that goes on periodically. Most of us will say at some point, we just can't afford to give. And most of the time, what we mean in that moment is, we can't give without it actually costing us something, a.k.a. sacrificial giving, right? The exact place, ironically, that's the exact place that that the Lord is wanting to take us all into that place where it feels like we can't afford to do that. That that is exactly where the Lord wants to take us. Uh, C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity, he he addressed this question like this, and I think it's really helpful. He said, I do not believe one can settle how much we ought to give. I'm afraid that the only safe rule is to give more than we can spare. In other words, if our expenditures on comforts luxuries, amusement, etc., is up to the standard common among those with the same income as our own, we are probably giving away too little. If our charities do not at all pinch us or hamper us, I should say that they are too small. There ought to be things we should like to do and cannot do because our giving expenditure excludes them. I think that's a great grid to have over our life, to to ask those sort of questions. Is that us? Are are we giving in such a way where it's it's become the governor over our life? Christians give. They they give sacrificially. Here's the third observation. Is Christians give gladly. Christians give gladly. Look at verse 3 again. This is is probably my favorite part of 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. It says, for they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means. And then it says this, of their own accord. Like no one made them do it. Nobody was sitting there with a gun to their head to to, to make them, to force them. That they gave of their own accord, begging us earnestly. Begging us earnestly. I mean, think about that. They were begging Paul earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. Now, now that's crazy. Here comes an opportunity to give, and their posture was, what, Paul, whatever you do, don't pass us up. Yes, we're impoverished, and it's extreme poverty. Yes, we're suffering, but Paul, whatever you do, don't take the, the sort of gladness that we would experience if we were able to give to that need. Do not take that from us, Paul. Uh, years ago, I was talking to a friend of mine in his church had just started a generosity initiative. 
There were things that the Lord had in front of that church, and now it was time for the whole church to get behind that so that could get accomplished and, and done. And he was talking about and, and just in some ways reflecting upon how quickly cynicism just erupted in his heart. You've probably felt and, and had this same sort of script come up in you at times. It's that script that says, you know, all they care about is money. That, that's all they, they, they're about. That's all they care about. It's, it, it's, it's just that and nothing else. It's that script just instantly arose in his heart. And it, on one level, just listening to him, it, it made me you know, reflect upon my own heart. And it's like, listening to him say that, I'm like, I have felt every one of those feelings. I have thought every one of those thoughts that you're thinking, I have thought those things. I mean, that cynicism can, can arise up in me r- really quickly too. And I want to take a second to address that. Like, why is that? Why does cynicism in so many of our hearts come so quickly? And I think there's two main reasons. Uh, one reason, uh, you might could just put it under the category of uh, crazy pastors. That's one reason, crazy pastors. Uh, and, and there are pastors who are legitimately crazy. Uh, when I, it, it's interesting, anytime I tell someone I'm a pastor, there is a part of me that cringes. And, and, and the reason is, is because I know that in saying that, I am now sucked into a larger category called pastor, and some of those people are crazy. I mean, some of them are, are legitimately nuts, and, and, and they manipulate. And, and in some ways, they are spiritually abusive to their people, especially when it comes to, to, this, to this issue of giving. Like when a pastor stands in front of his people and encourages them to give so that he can buy a $65 million jet, that is wrong. It's just, it's just wrong. And, and some in this room have come from context like that, or you've, you've done yourself the disservice of watching enough TV preaching where you've seen that, and it's just put in your heart all sorts of cynicism. And just uh, uh, as a part of the category called pastor, I just want to look at you, and if that's you, just to apologize and say, I am so sorry. Because that is so wrong, and that rightly produces cynicism in the hearts of people. But there's another reason that I think is more common than that as to why cynicism erupts in us. And that reason is money sickness. Money sickness, or idolatry, or greed. It's just an inordinate desire for money and, and material things. It's so interesting for me. Preaching on money and possessions is such an interesting moment because I know it is unlike any other issue that I preach on. It is the one area that I know anytime we talk about it um, on a stage like this to our church as a whole, it is going to, to bring about some crazy in a lot of our hearts. Unlike any other area that, that I preach on, any other issue that I preach on, it, it just stirs up all sorts of crazy. And part of that is because money sickness, that, that's looking to, to money and possessions for life. But what is going to give us security in life? What's going to give us satisfaction? What's going to make us a somebody? Money sickness is looking to money for all of those things. And money sickness is so deeply ingrained in our culture that it just feels normal to us. It's abnormal not to be money sick. It's normal to have money sickness deeply ingrained in our hearts, so deeply ingrained that it shows itself in cynicism and and sensitivity and defensiveness when anyone, including Jesus, starts poking around on our money and possessions. Like, Jesus, how could you? 
Here's the line. You're welcome up to that line, but not across it, Jesus. Money sickness produces those sorts of feelings in us. I mean, this is the ironic thing. Money sickness is what makes any sermon about money hard to hear. Greed is what makes any sermon on greed hard to bear. Money idolatry is what makes any sermon on money so difficult to to hear without there being walls and resistance and all sorts of, of barriers between us and what it is the Lord might have for us in that moment. So a sermon like this is in a lot of ways an opportunity. If you're feeling that resistance, listen, I've been been there. I have felt that. I do feel that often in this conversation. And if you feel that, it's a great moment to be curious about that, to bring those feelings to the Lord and ask the Lord to give you clarity on why it is that you feel that. In In light of God giving 2,350 verses that much real estate to this particular topic, why it is that you would feel so much defensiveness or, or sensitivity around it. It's a great thing to do is to bring that before the Lord and ask him to, to help you see that, to, to help you discern that question of like, has my heart latched on to money and possessions in a sick rather than healthy way? And it was interesting, my, my friend who just was feeling all those sort of cynical feelings he began to look at 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 4, and it was the place in the Bible that provided him the most help. He, he just laid his heart, what, what he was feeling in this moment, beside the Macedonian's heart and just started begging God to give him that Macedonian heart, that, that begging heart, that pleading heart. And could all of us not use a, a good dose of that from the Lord? Like for God to to give us more of of this. I mean, look at verse 4. Of their own accord, begging us earnestly to take part for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. Begging earnestly. That's sort of a heart when it comes to generosity. Or Paul says it like this in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 7. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion. And then it says this, for God loves a cheerful giver, just like the Macedonians. God loves that heart that says, yes, I am a glad-hearted giver. Now, now hear that. God is not after just any sort of obedience. He is after a very particular kind of obedience. The Bible doesn't just say, give. It's not all the Bible says. No, no it says, I, I want you to actually give in a certain type of a way. I want you to give in a glad-hearted way. And glad-hearted generosity, glad-hearted sacrificial generosity is the type of generosity that Jesus makes possible. That, that looks like this. It's a begging generosity. That, that posture that says, God, you're the owner. I'm the steward. God, you just show me what it is you want to do with your money, and I am in on that. Yes, that, that is the sort of generosity that God makes possible. So let's just ask for God to give us that heart, that that glad-hearted generosity. Now, uh, let me just quickly answer this question. What do we do if we don't have that heart this morning? If at best we are begrudging givers this morning, what what do we do if that's where we find ourselves? I think there's two things to say to that. One is we do our duty. The Bible is clear Christians give. They, they give sacrificially. So we do our duty. We don't wait for the right motive to do the thing that God wants us to do. But here's the second thing we need to hear. As we give, we are recognizing our motive is not what God would want. 
That, that, that we don't have delight underneath the duty that we're doing. And, and we stop and we linger over that and, and we repent of that and we ask God to change our heart, to make us more like the Macedonians, to unlock in us that glad-hearted generosity. So, so we do our duty as we're repenting and pleading with the Lord to make our hearts look like this, a begging glad-heartedness in our generosity. Now, how does God make our hearts glad in our giving? We'll finish with this. Last observation. Christians give in response. Christians give in response. This passage, 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, really has a simple logic that, that undergirds it. You, you might could think of it in terms of like it's gospel logic. And here is gospel logic. Grace fuels giving. Grace fuels giving. So what Jesus has done for us fuels what we then do for him. Jesus has done, enables our doing. That's gospel logic. Grace fuels giving. So let me just show you this in the passage. Look at the two bookends of this passage, 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. Let's start in 2 Corinthians 8 verse 1. Look at what it says. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that was given among the churches of Macedonia. Here is bookend number one, the grace of God. Paul is saying, Corinthian church, I want you to know this grace. I want you to see this grace. What starts this passage, the beginning of this whole passage on giving is grace because it's, it's the generosity, it's the grace of God toward us that creates in us generosity. It's his generosity working in us that creates generosity. Grace fuels giving. I love how Randy Alcorn refers to this. He says, where the lightning of grace strikes, the thunder of generosity is sure to follow. That's the logic of the passage. Grace fuels giving. The lightning of grace strikes, the thunder of generosity and giving in the heart of, of Jesus' followers then pours out. That's the beginning of the passage. Now let's go to the very end of the passage, the last verse in chapter 9. Verse 15, it ends like this. Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. You could translate it like this. Thanks be to God for his inexpressible grace, for God's inexpressible generosity. You've got the bookends of 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. The first verse and the last verse is all about the generosity of God, the grace of God. But it's not just the bookend, it's also the binding. Look at 2 Corinthians 8 verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. For you know the grace of our Lord. You, you know it, you've experienced it, you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, what is the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ? That though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. That's the generosity of God. That's the grace of God. It's, it's God sending his beloved son, Jesus. It's Jesus trading the riches of heaven for the rags of this world. It's Jesus taking on human flesh and dwelling among us. Can you just think about that for a moment? That God inserted himself into a mother's womb into the form of a baby. I'm just saying, if I'm God, I'm choosing a different way to come. But that is the generosity of God. 
And Jesus went on to give us his life. He lived perfectly in our place. Everywhere you have stumbled, Jesus stood. Everywhere you have done wrong, Jesus did right. But the impoverishment of Jesus didn't stop at his life. After giving us his perfect life, Jesus also gave us his death. Jesus was hung on a cross between two criminals, and there his poverty was made complete. It was there that Jesus was crushed with the very wrath our sin deserved. This is the generosity of God. It's, it's Jesus becoming poor. Now, now, why did Jesus become poor? Paul tells us. Here's why. He says, it was for your sake. That's why he became poor. He became poor for your sake, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Is that not amazing? This is what separates Christianity from every other way of relating to God. Every other way of relating to God is giving you a God who takes. Christianity is the one God. It's the one God who gives who gives, who, who just sacrificially gives. And, and it, was a, it was sacrificial giving. He, he didn't give us his spare change. He, give, he gave us what he couldn't spare, the life of his very own beloved son. See, this is the passage's, this is the passage's logic, is that God gave us his big all, his big all, the life of his beloved son, so that now we as his sons and daughters can give back our little all to him. But it's his big all that enables the giving of our little all. That's, that's the logic. That, that's how Christian giving works. It's, it's responsive. It's Jesus impoverishing himself so that we could come, become embarrassingly rich. And then it's us when we realize we have gone from poor to in Jesus. We're in Jesus. Jesus is in us. With Jesus, we have everything that we need. That, that Jesus plus nothing really does equal everything. It's when we really start to see that and believe that receiving the generosity of God in the person of Jesus, that, that our walls begin to come down, that, that our hearts and hands begin to open up, and that generosity begins to flow. It's the grace of God that fuels our giving. So will you bow with me there where you are? And I want to give you just a moment to allow the Spirit of God to press into you what would be helpful this morning, to wipe away the things that, that wouldn't be helpful. Second Corinthians 8, 9, Paul starts by saying this, for, for you know the grace of God. For you know the grace of God. You, you've experienced the grace of God. The, the grace of God, is, of God is not some abstract theoretical concept. It has come home to your heart. You know the grace of God. That though he, Jesus, was rich, yet for your sake he became poor so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. 
And I just wonder if you know that grace. If you know the grace of God. Have you experienced the grace of God? And and here's how we experience the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. It's we turn from our sin. There's this defining moment in our life where, where we have turned from our sin. And we hurl our life upon the generosity of God, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And we hold up our lives to God and say, I am trusting Jesus and Jesus alone to make me right with you. I'm trusting Jesus and him alone to reconcile me to you, to to, to get me into your family. I'm turning from my sin. All of my chips are now being moved over to Jesus. And, And I just wonder if you've done that, if you've experienced that. Do you know the grace of God? Do you you know it? Deep down in your bones, do you know if you experience the grace of God? And some of us, for the very first time this morning, the Lord is working in you right now, wooing you, talking to you. And and this is that defining moment for you, you, where you push your chips across that line. You make that decisive decision to turn from your sin and to throw your life upon the saving work of Jesus. And if that's you, you can just right there where you are, you can can say that to God. God, I'm turning from my sin. I'm trusting Jesus. I'm trusting Jesus to make me right with you. Here's my life. Rescue me. Save me. And if that's you this morning, would, would you just mind, with every head bowed, would you just mind looking up at me and raising your hand if that's you this morning? Yeah, I see you. It's awesome. Just make eye contact with me and raise your hand if that's you in the room this morning. Yeah, any others? Mm Mm-hmm. Just raise your hand there and make eye contact with me. Any others? Yeah. So for those of you who raised your hand, the most important thing you can do is as soon as our service is over, we have post-service prayer right up here up front. And we'll have some of our pastors and prayer team up here. We would love to begin that journey with you today. So come up here and let us pray for you. Let us encourage you this morning for all those who took that first decisive step toward Jesus. For the rest of us in the room, may we know the grace of God freshly again today. And may the generosity of God spur us on to be generous ourselves. So God, would you do that in us? Oh God, would you? It's in your good name we ask it. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church. A podcast is never meant to replace gathering with your church to hear the preaching of the Bible. So we want to encourage you to be part of a local church family. We meet every Sunday at 9 and 11 a.m. and would love for you to join us as we enjoy Jesus together.